Welcome to Business in Asia, a discussion with executives in the region on the role of technology and innovation. Every episode, we discuss three things. What is unique about your business? What recent challenges have you overcome? And what's going on in your industry? Okay, on the show today, we have Vic Sipha-Sanan, Chief Growth Officer of Everrise. Uh, welcome to the program, Vic. Hey, Jeremy, how's it going? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good, all good here. Um, I'm very aware of the time here, Vic, and I kind of pitched the show very much as a very concise kind of podcast where we get to the issues as quick as possible. So I kind of, if you don't mind, want to jump into discussion fairly quick. Uh, but before sure. we do that, and I know this is dangerous on a short uh, show to, to ask an executive about their career history, but just, <laughs> just very quickly, what is it that you do at Everize and, and how did you come in to join the business? Okay, sure. Um, and, and thanks so much for speaking to me. Really excited to be on the show. Um, so I uh, came into Everize um, group in 2018. So I uh, was a co-founder for a company called Hyperlab along with two other co-founders, so Janet and Chris. Uh, we were acquired by Everize in October 2018. Um, so Hyperlab was a purely AI company, uh, really working on automating conversational interfaces. So that could be in chat or could be in messenger, could be voice. Um, and we were acquired to kind of bring that technology and that expertise into the Everize group. So what I do today uh, with Everize is I uh, drive growth for specifically the digital experiences side of the business. Um, and as you know, I mean, every business today needs to be pretty much a digital business or digital first. Um, so, we've, you know, we've been busy the last six months working with clients um, and, and trying to kind of accelerate whatever digital transformation strategies they may have had to kind of bring that forward and try to kind of get them working during the pandemic and, you know, kind of rolling them out in the digital space. Oh. That probably begs the question of what Everize does. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> it's a very entrepreneurial background, and that's, that's, that's kind of great. And interesting to see how you kind of fit into Everize now. But yeah, in a, in a kind of brief summary, what is it that Everize does then? So Everize, um, what we do, I, I, I would say, if we were to kind of summarize that in a sentence, what we do is we deliver customer experience on behalf of our clients. So we work with Fortune 500 clients. We work with um, a lot of uh, kind of unicorn startups that you may have heard, um, also kind of high growth tech startups that are kind of starting them, starting out. And what we do is we um, take on the customer experience workload of these, uh, these companies. So if you, I mean, if you, if you were to look at it in kind of like a, a base layer at the core, we would be um, a sort of BPO. So we take your business process, you outsource that to us. But we are quite different in a way that we really look at delivering value instead of just cost saving. So a lot of things that we do, and I guess we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that, is really on kind of elevating customer experience, even much better than maybe something that you may have managed um, internally within the company itself. I mean, most people might kind of just simply think of call centers, but it's obviously much more than that. So, I mean, who are your typical customers and what problems do you help them solve? You mentioned Fortune 500 companies. Are, yep. are there specific yep. industries within that? Or is it pretty much any large kind of retail company I'm imagining? Yeah, I mean, call centers would definitely be part of that. But we also have, um, uh, you know, different types of solutions for different types of companies. Um, you know, so 
human-assisted service is definitely a core part of the service we offer, but there's definitely other uh, strategic services that, that we bring onto the table. So the clients that we work with, um, specifically, for example, in the US, we have a huge healthcare uh, practice. So we, we manage some of the best brands and the biggest brands, of, uh, you know, healthcare providers in the US. Um, we also manage a couple of airlines clients, um, uh, retailers. Um, so we do have a bunch of different types of practice areas that we, we specialize in. Um, but definitely there are some areas that we, we don't have any practice areas. Like, for example, we don't do a lot of uh, work around automotive clients, for example. Um, so we're quite focused in retail, healthcare, um, and services like airlines, for example, um, in, in the U.S., um, in Asia, we've had, um, you know, quite a bit of success working with high growth um, unicorns in Asia. So we work with, you know, very well-known brands, unfortunately, we can't name them. Um, but we work with some of the biggest uh, kind of brands that are out there that have, you know, billions of dollars worth of funding and, and you know, in Asia kind of multilingual uh, delivery across different markets. So it really, you know, is is... Because we are a global company, um, we have 12,000 people across the world, um, you know, half of them in the US and, and half of them across Asia and, and Latin America. So we've, and we also have centers in Europe and now Marrakesh as well. So we've got, you know, quite a nice, uh, diverse group of people, but different industries across the different regions um, that, we, that we operate in. What is it you think? that you provide that um, others don't in your space? I would say that when you look at a typical BPO space, um, you know, most BPO companies would be offering um, cost efficiency. And although that's one of the key area that we do help our clients with, I think, you know, where we can really um, be a strategic partner is because we open up new value areas for our clients. So the way that we break down our services, we have customer experience, which is kind of our core business. So that could be human assisted and digital assisted to a certain extent in terms of um, how we, um, you know, take in a customer service call or a tech support request. But we also have, um, you know, a practice area around product experience. So we look at, um, um, home automation companies in the US, for example, um, you know, and some of them really big names um, and really help them look at their product from the beta stage all the way to going live. And we try to eliminate tech support and customer support, um, you know, future tech support and customer support inquiries by looking at their product, running it through our lab. Um, and really understanding, uh, you know, areas to fix before it even goes live. So that's our product experience um, service. And then the, the, the kind of area that I work in, which is the digital experience area, is really looking at um, current digital channels that you may be, um, you know, having multiple part, uh, parties kind of managing. So you could have social media, you could have email, uh, chat, uh, your website, self-service applications, and kind of bringing that into a cohesive, um, and very synergistic experience for your customer. So, for example, you could start, um, say you could be in your, say, online banking app and doing something and you get stuck and being able to transfer that um, and being able to kind of get assistance in a very seamless manner where it could be an automated service that comes in and kind of helps you through it or it could be a human-assisted service that understands where you've been through in your journey and then come in and then kind of assist you with it. So. DX is really looking at kind of combining all the kind of digital experiences that you have today 
and kind of bringing that together, but also with an eye out on future experiences like augmented reality and virtual reality and the things that we don't know what's going to happen in that space in the next couple of years, but trying to get people and companies ready for their next step. You mentioned being able to spot problems early on in a process. Um, how much of that is a kind of talent in terms of your your staff being able to assess a problem? Or how much of it is, is it a process? Uh, and how much does technology or AI come into play in kind of solving those problems? Um, great question. I, actually, the, the PX piece, which is the product experience piece, um, runs out of our lab in Austin, um, Texas. And they came um, through an acquisition as well, almost about the same time that we got acquired in Hyperlab. So they were called True Source Lab. Uh, labs and they were really um, I would say the pioneer and the kind of thought leader in that space of kind of really looking at um, the area of IoT products and home products um, and, and the, the kind of team that started that came from Apple so they have a really great um, kind of product uh, creation and product launch mindset uh, which they could kind of bring into this and kind of roll this out so we have a methodology called systematic insights. Um, it's something that uh, we own, it's proprietary. So there is a methodology and a framework in terms of how we approach um, looking and evaluating a product before it goes live. But, and of course, a lot of that is also driven by the great talent we have in Austin. But you know, the, I think the, the, the methodology and the framework is the centerpiece in how we deliver this consistently across different clients. So we've you know, what started off as a couple of clients in that space, we've now got about six different um, home automation IoT clients that are going through this process. And, you know, we've been able to save about two and a half million dollars worth of product errors and recalls through the systematic insights process because we've been able to spot issues even before the product goes live. So I think that's actually quite interesting because Although, you know, a lot of companies would be in the business of taking the support calls and making money on, you know, from just delivering on that volume, we want to kind of eliminate that, that volume altogether. So as I said in the beginning, you know, we're very value driven. We want to give value back to the client and we want to elevate product experience. You know, I mean, just talking about backgrounds early on, I mean, I come from, an, uh, before this, I come from a digital advertising background and, you know, the, the, the days of the big ad um, you know, where you had this amazing ad on TV and on, in cinema and, you know, you had this film that would kind of evoke all these emotions and get you to kind of lust after a brand that almost doesn't exist today, right? So a lot of it is around the experience that people have, experience that influencers have and how they go and project that on social media and, and to their friends. So I think that's why elevating product experience and delivering the best sort of product, customer, and digital experience is key to our ethos within the company. Because if we can help our clients do that, then they grow as a business, and then we obviously grow on the back of that. Oh, that's that sounds very interesting. It's kind of interesting also that you know the focus on excelling in that area might actually mean you have less customer experience business. Yeah, but we you know but we we help them with that advisory service, which of course uh, is revenue generating. But we also then take on more of their product portfolio, and they. I mean, a lot of these uh, companies that we work with have been through recommendations. We also kind of build that from you know client recommendations, uh, and then 
people moving and kind of continuing wanting to work with us, which is, I think, also good validation that it's a service that works. Yeah, no, absolutely. But what I also find fascinating is that you, you kind of work with, as you said, mm. the unicorns and Fortune 1000 companies and kind of startups. How do you kind of deliver to both types of organizations? Is it the, the same service that you offer or are there different kind of offerings? How, how does it work? How can you kind of service such disparate kind of uh, customers? Yeah, you know, it, it's really interesting. I mean, if you think about the, the mindsets in a startup that's growing, they want that rigor of a larger company. Um, and a larger company wants the agility and the, you know, fast pace of a startup. So I think if you can kind of center yourself in providing, I mean, we are fully compliant with PCI, DSS, HIPAA, and all of the compliance you would need to kind of manage these Fortune 500 companies. But we are agile. I mean, if you think about, and if you've seen some of the, the, the work that we put out and the way that we the run the company throughout, we are like a pretty large startup. And, and that mindset is that we, we're always, uh, you know, we're kind of always kind of moving and, you know, we're trying to create and, and, and develop new things. So I think, you know, having that mindset of having that rigor and that infrastructure that is world-class that can support a Fortune 500 company and bringing that to a startup, but also bringing that mindset of being agile and, and you know, bringing innovation, bringing insights, bringing analytics, um, big data, and all of those kind of startup um, kind of services to a Fortune 500 company is a kind of a marriage that works really well for both sides of our business. So we, we don't have to treat each customer differently. I think we've got all the ingredients that, that make a, you know, a good pot uh, of uh, soup uh, that you know, everyone can enjoy, but we, we don't change that recipe for each client. So I, I think that's, that's I think a, 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 you know, a great way to look at it. So if you're just uh, you know, very, um, I would say, very old-fashioned and you, know, you kind of only work with larger companies that wouldn't work with a startup and if you're super agile and you, know, you don't have that rigor and certification and infrastructure, it's never going to work. So I think we've got the, you know, we've got the best of both worlds um, and that's why we've been able to grow both sides of that business um, kind of evenly across the years. Right. Well, no, that kind of makes a great deal of sense. I was actually looking on your website uh, at, and I couldn't go through an interview uh, having a, a kind of COVID-19 question, of yeah. course, which is kind of <laughs> going to date the episode a little bit, I imagine. But uh, on your website, you have a, a home-based agent solution. How yeah. was that influenced by what we're experiencing currently? I think um, yeah, in some ways, I would say that um, you know, we were incredibly uh, fortunate um, that we had a work-at-home program um, that was running a few years before the pandemic. Um, it was something that we were building the infrastructure for. Um, and uh, we, I mean, it, it was something that we were always keen to do. Um, and, and, you know, because we do um, manage multilingual clients across the world, and obviously a work-at-home solution is beneficial, um, you know, to be able to place people anywhere in the world to be able to service clients. So that was something that we were, you know, heavy in R&D for the last couple of years. And we actually had a, 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 a sizable work-at-home team, um, full permanent work-at-home team um, that was um, servicing one of our larger healthcare clients even before the pandemic. Um, and we also invested um, in 2019 to move a lot of the infrastructure that we had to the cloud. So we, we became a fully cloud-based company by the end of 2019. 
Um, and that's with our partnership with Microsoft and, you know, Avaya and all of these other technology providers across the years. We, we managed to do that very effectively in 2019. So we were very fortunate that we were, you know, we, we had, I would say, the kind of building blocks to allow us to work at home. Um, so we transitioned to a fully, I, I would say, nine, at, at one point, we had 97% of our workforce fully working at home. And that was within two to three weeks uh, of the lockdown situations in many of the uh, you know, countries that we operate in. So we were fortunate that we had that infrastructure and knowledge in place. We just had to scale it. And we were able to scale that super effectively in the time frame that we had. So we, we you know, have an amazing uh, CIO and his team kind of just went into action and we were able to kind of scale that super quickly. Um, and we've had to, you know, we, a lot of our competitors, unfortunately, during this time had to close down centers and kind of um, um, had to turn away work um, during that time. But we didn't have to do any of that. In fact, we grew during this uh, pandemic because um, there was a lot of demand for services and not a lot of providers that were able to service from work at home. So we actually were able to kind of grow in, the, in, in that time. Um, but we didn't have to kind of disappoint any of our clients and we managed to keep service levels up. Um, we even launched a new client actually in the US during the pandemic as well. So a brand new client that we were onboarding before the pandemic. And unfortunately, um, uh, it happened and lockdown in the US uh, started to happen, but we were still able to keep all our timelines and, and launch it in time. Um, across a couple of different, so we have a couple of different centers managing a client. So in McGregor in the US and Guatemala, um, and we had a full digital uh, spectrum of tools that were actually launching at the same time. So it all happened uh, pretty effectively, although the teams were all at home. Well, that's interesting. So uh, a lot of companies are taking some credit for, for being able to pivot, which is a word that everybody's using these days. Yeah. But you guys were already moving in that direction anyway. So you say it's fortunate, maybe a bit of foresight there as well. And it seems a, a good way for the industry to go anyway. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, for from all the meetings I've had with clients uh, all across the world, I think, you know, having a, a team that works at home as a contingency plan or a disaster recovery plan or, you know, a, 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 it's definitely going to be um, a committed part of the team would be a work at home kind of team setup. So I would say 20, 30% of, you know, every client that we manage would need to be managed from a work at home scenario just in case something like this happens again or this kind of extends uh, and we don't find a vaccine or, you know, it, this kind of situation kind of extends, at least the client knows that we can handle their business. So I, it's definitely changed the way we're going to be working um, and the way that we, you know, we're going to be opening new um, offices around the world. And it's not going to be the same as we did it two years ago, for sure. Just um, in terms of your most recent kind of offerings or new services, I kind of wanted to ask you a frank question about, is there anything that you've kind of introduced uh, that's new, uh, that, that's, that you've had some problems or challenges with um, when you introduce them. Uh, kind of interesting to go through that process with you and find out how you overcome them. Are, are there any kind of new services or offerings that you'll bring into the market that you've kind of had to overcome some challenges with? Yeah, I think for sure. I think, uh, you know, we, um, the, the client I was telling you that we onboarded during the pandemic, they're a U.S. Uh, retailer, a pretty large one. Um, and one of the things that we were quite keen to do was to kind of uh, build self-service um, using natural voice IVR. Um, 
So, you know, essentially you go in and you just speak as naturally as you want and then be able to route you to a specific service area or actually get you to self-service in terms of, you know, getting your expiry date or getting an order status or any one of those things, you know, completely through yourself. I think the challenge that we had, although it was largely in English, is that, you know, you're dealing with a very, I mean, the U.S. is a huge market. Uh, you have different accents. Uh, you have different um, terms people may use to refer to things. So a lot of uh, training that was put into that to kind of train the AI to understand um, and effectively route you while maintaining, you know, the kind of quality standards that uh, are required by the client. Um, and these quality standards are not lower for AI. I mean, they're just a quality standard that they, they, they benchmark on how a human would assist, a, you know, a customer we've had to do that with AI. So I think that was a big challenge. Um, and I think, you know, for, for us to overcome that, we, we've been working in the natural language space for about five years now. Um, there's a lot of learnings that we had working in Southeast Asia when we first launched in terms of just understanding different dialects and understanding, you know, the way that people may chat and talk and, you know, using multilingual uh, kind of, uh, whether it's texting or, you know, speaking with slangs. So those kind of learnings really came in handy, although it was, as I said, just purely in English. It still came in handy because it allowed us to train our bots to be able to understand different accents at work. And also the, the users that were using the service were slightly older. They were not, uh, you know, they were not millennials or, you know, people that were used to kind of speaking to Siri or Alexa. You know, these were people, that, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s that were, you know, members of this retailer and they were and and they've been successfully using the system actually we're we're able to have about 70 to 80 percent containment uh, within the ivr so what that means is so someone comes in they have um, intent to do something um, and we're able to contain and successfully complete their request completely through a self-service channel within the ivr 70 percent of all volumes um, are handled that way and only 30% then um, go down to a live agent. So what that means for us is, um, so this retailer during the pandemic had a huge increase in online orders, obviously, because no one could go to the store, right? So I mean, so to be able to handle that volume in traditional sense would mean you need to put more warm bodies um, to the problem and, and hopefully that kind of helps you. But in, in a situation like this, the digital aspects of it gave, or the automation aspects of it gave it scale. So we were able to scale up and handle, you know, two, three times the volume, um, you know, without needing to increase headcount. Um, so I think that's what's really interesting about this is the technology here is to be able to give you the scale you need when you need it. But the thing is the magic is to be able to create an experience that's good enough or as good as how, uh, you know, a really great human would assist a customer. So I think that's where the challenge really lies in the kind of automation piece. Oh, that sounds, uh, that sounds incredible. I have to say, it's interesting what you said about kind of the older population kind of being online and that's slightly different. 
Uh, I'm starting to think that um, I've kind of been rather too critical of the older generation. Uh, I know my, my own father, for example, is much better at using WhatsApp than I am. So <laughs> I, I think you know, that generation, I think, uh, have a lot more going for them than people realize. But uh, no, it's interesting that that was a kind of a segment that you've kind of been dealing with as well. And this service has been running in, in Asia Pacific as well, uh, as well, which is kind of interesting because although you know English, the English language is, is, is very proficient in, in this part of the world, you know, obviously you do have different accents. So it's interesting that you've been running it in Asia as well. For, for English, definitely there's, there's accents and there's uh, an infusion of other words that could be from other languages that would trip up any kind of NLU because, you're, you know, usually you train it purely from a, a single language, language standpoint. But also when you start to speak, uh, uh, you know, um, a local language, it could be nuanced with other words that are from a, another language. So for example... If you've been to Singapore, um, you know, there's a lot of Hokkien words in English. Um, if you come to, uh, you know, Malaysia, so people may speak in Bahasa uh, Malaysia, but then Bahasa Melayu, but then they may also add English words to it. So, you know, you, it's quite, yeah. you know, it's quite mixed. So you need to really be able to handle this kind of, uh, kind of mixed use of dialects and local languages and English um, all in, in a co combination. So it kind of is a huge challenge to do that. So, you know, five years ago, we did a lot of that in text, uh, but we're starting to do a lot more of it in voice um, as people get more used to speaking to a bot and, you know, kind of uh, being conversational with a bot rather than just, you know, you know, being very blunt or asking a single question and then, you know, moving away from it. So I think, that's also a bit of maturity, um, you know, from all generations, I think. Oh, that, those are really interesting learnings for, for that particular service. I'm just wondering what lessons you might have drawn out of that that would help you with new projects or, or other things you're working on. Were there any kind of lessons you learned from the way you tackled that and, and, the, and the way you solved some of those issues? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the, I mean... I, I, you know, looking at the pandemic and, and how we had to, to kind of deal with some of these cases, I think one of the things that for me that I learned a lot about is that, you know, you, you have to have a certain amount of fluency and in, in the, the, the kind of efforts that you put into creating your, so for, for example, let's say, you know, from my point of view, you know, all the digital experiences that you put out there, there needs to be a certain amount of I would say digital fluency in, in how you roll them out. And, and what I mean by that is being able to scale up your, your service. Like, for example, for the retailer in the US, we could you know, move from 10,000 calls a day to 30,000 calls a day without needing to do anything in terms of um, you know, changing up the code or restructuring or you know, doing any of that. So I think kind of really thinking about, you know, we, we live in almost uncertain times. So I think, you know, being able to kind of think about that and, and think about how you want to kind of roll things out to be able to scale. And also, I think what's interesting is also going back and looking at data and trying to really get insights from your own data because there's so many things that are happening in digital. Um, and usually, you know, you, yeah, you, you may have some web tracking and you may have some reports that come in, but, you know, really taking a deep dive and really understanding your customer and their behaviors will allow you to kind of maybe take away things like um, bias from the way you segment or how you segmented it before um, and really removing that bias and looking at your, your customers in a, in a fresh way. Um, I think all of these kind of different things will allow you to kind of build a system that can, can 
kind of work through an uncertain time because you know like if you you look at how everyone became an e-commerce um, purchaser during this time and we've been buying things from you know um, online retailers all across the world um, you know we're happy to get our food delivered to us you know all of these things are behavior changes that have happened but if we look at just segmenting our customer data like the way that we did a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, which, you know, to be honest, marketing segmentation, the way that, you know, everyone segments their, their customers have, have been the same for many, many years. It's never going to work today. So you're going to be spending a bunch of money doing marketing and you're, it's not going to be effective, essentially. So I think, you know, being fluent um, and, and being able to really uh, dig deep into your data and, and look at the insights, building systems that can scale, um, uh, incredibly important lessons, I think, in today. I, you know, that, that helped us uh, work from home. Um, you know, being able to scale that, it helped us with uh, this retailer and onboarding them during a time where there was chaos. Uh, you know, all of these things kind of point to that kind of fluency. And, and I think that's the lesson that I, I would take out from this. So if you do things in, in a kind of ad hoc and, you know, kind of, um, you know, it's just without any plans, then what's going to happen is a lot of that investment is going to be wasted um, and it's not going to work long term. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, some interesting points there about uh, looking at how best to scale and uh, the whole issue of, you know, first party data, your own data. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So many, I think so many companies are obsessed with collecting data from different sources and you know, their own first party data is, is something they should be looking at and cleverer use of that. So yeah, totally. I think those are good learning. So I think that that's, that's interesting. I was going to ask you, actually, it's a bit of an unfair question, this one, mm. because I was going to ask oh, no. you about, kind of longer term challenges that you're working on that maybe you haven't solved yet that you're still working on. Uh, I don't know if you want to share any kind of long term challenges that you don't really have an, an answer for just yet, but you are working on them and you are, you are making progress. Yeah, I do have a big one, actually, um, oh. <laughs> that we're working on right now. Uh, I, you know, we, we talk about automation and technology and adoption being healthy and, you know, people kind of uh, taking on tech and, and, and doing that. But I think, you know, when, when we look at um, customer experience and kind of taking on technology to deliver on that um, consistently across different brands, I feel that there is still a bit of a trust uh, problem uh, or at least there, there is uh, kind of mindset with a customer who is dealing with automation that you don't really trust the, the, the system to be the one that can help you. Um, you obviously still prefer a person to be able to kind of help you uh, solve a problem. So I think, you know, that's, that's a combination of, uh, you know, a design challenge, a technology challenge as well to be able to kind of offer that. But there's also a lot of kind of education and, um, you know, kind of like that adoption needs to happen as well. So people start using these automation channels and start feeling comfortable using them. So I feel like from, for the DX point of view in terms of Everize, I would say that that's the biggest challenge. And, and I mean, it's not unique to us. I think it's, it's, it's a challenge that is faced by every technology provider that's trying to create, um, let's say, a human replacement, um, if you like, in terms of just delivering different services, uh, so that's definitely something that that is very very difficult to overcome. Um, there's a ton of research and effort being done all around the world um, in in order to solve this, but it's something that's very real for us in terms of a business sense. So that's definitely a challenge that we haven't 
you know, haven't solved at this point yet. I mean, we're making efforts, but we haven't solved it. No. I can see how, you know, that, you know, that challenge may change or may not become such a challenge as people get used to different forms mm-hmm. of communication and everybody is much more digitally aware. But no, it's interesting that that's still perceived to be a challenge. There was one question I wanted to ask you, kind of to finish off. Uh, it's a bit more of a, a serious question, I guess, but there are lots of companies that have some kind of purpose that's kind of inbuilt or some kind of mission. And there are lots of people, certainly in, in the current environment, that speak to issues of diversity, for example. Mm. But at Everise, it does seem to be a little bit more important. It seems to be diversity seems to be a little bit more ingrained into your culture. I kind of wondered why that was and how that play, plays out for your business. Yeah, I, I, diversity is or celebrating diversity is definitely, uh, um, you know, one of the three core values that we have. And, and for us, it's, it's definitely something that we hold very dear because we are a worldwide company. We've got 12,000 people across the world um, and everyone needs to work with everyone very closely to deliver on a client. So, I mean, this is something for, I mean, you know, it, it is definitely something to celebrate and to, to kind of enjoy the different cultures. Um, and it's, it's been something that we've, uh, I mean, for, for us, it's, it's like a day one thing. We never kind of, you know, it's, it's, we, we didn't have to think about it because that's, I think, the mindset for the management team from day one that this is how uh, we would want to build this company out. So I think for us, that's definitely something that we hold very dear um, and, and we definitely want to kind of promote across every different location that we're uh, in. So, I mean, if you go into any location, you would see the values, um, you know, that, that are up um, and, uh, you know, people are happy There's this, you know, if you look at our glass door ratings, it's, it's incredibly high. Um, so, you know, those kind of things are really important to us because we are a people first business anyway. So it's important for us to ensure that all of these things are kind of, you know, our core and it's something that is visible and it's something that, you know, we always talk about. Um, so it's definitely not something that is uh, new for us. No, oh, that's great. And I like the way you put, uh, you're obviously a, a tech-focused business, but you, you suggested that you're a people-first business, which is, which is interesting. And I think that's I think that's to your credit. I think that's the way it should be. No, oh, that's uh, that's great, Vic. Hey, listen, Vic. I really wanted to thank you for being on the show today. That was very interesting. I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts, uh, not only on your business, but you know, some of the challenges that you faced and you know, how other businesses could maybe learn from that as well. So. That is much appreciated. Uh, if people wanted to reach out to you directly or, or find out more about Everize, um, how best can they do that? Yeah, I, I think the best way would be to kind of uh, either connect with me on LinkedIn or um, I guess, Jeremy, if you, you I, I don't mind you uh, adding my email to your uh, podcast notes as well. Some of the questions were obviously quite tough. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I hope it, it helps. And yeah, I, I would be happy to chat again. If, if you're ever interested. Yeah, no, absolutely. I would love to follow up on some of these issues. And there's some of them that I'd like to go a little bit deeper as well. So we'll definitely like the opportunity to do that uh, again, Vic. And I'll definitely include some uh, contact um, points in, in the notes, in the podcast notes. So there'll be some references there for people to reach out to you. Really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks very much for listening today. To listen to other executives share their ideas, how they overcame challenges to their business, listen to the Business in Asia podcast on all the main podcast channels, including Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts.